by far one of the most difficult things Jesus ever said was that you are to love your enemy. I mean, there's just few things that compare. I'm going to begin in a text found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. If you have a device and are joining me or turning, Luke, chapter 6. Here's where he made that comment. Woe to you when all speak well of you. Boy, we could, we could have a series on that. If everybody's talking good about you, something's wrong. <laughs> you're not being where you're supposed to be, doing what you're supposed to be doing, being who God created you to be, if everybody's talking good about you. For that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Okay, a lot of praise, a lot of hyperbole, a lot of what we hear in the press today and in religious circles today about individuals who are really successful and doing well and have big churches and all that. But I say to you who are listening, so it does take a listening, you have to be intentional with this, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. So here's the big idea for today. There is a way to remove violence from disagreement, retaliation from pain. However, it requires forgiveness rather than condemnation and a choice to honor rather than to display indignity. As I thought about that, I just... I wrote that out, and then I realized that there were five key words here in this. Disagreement, pain, retaliation, condemnation, indignity. So I looked them up. Ah, Thank you, Jesus, for Webster's Dictionary. Right? So we think we know what things mean and we sometimes even use the words but we're not, you know. Disagreement. What does disagreement mean? Yeah. To offer a different opinion or to have a difference of opinion. Pain. Well, I have a pain in my sciatic nerve that I've been wrestling with. But that's not the pain we're talking about. We're talking about it in relationship to community. And relationships. Pain means to make suffer or to cause distress. So when I'm causing you pain, I'm causing you to suffer. Or I'm causing you distress, obviously emotionally. Retaliation? To repay in kind. How many times have you wanted to repay somebody in kind for the way they made you suffer? the way they hurt you, right? You wanted to repay them in kind. But this whole thing now has elevated to where 
there's a, there's a new sense of repaying in kind punishment and violence even for having a difference of opinion. How many of you are with me? Do you understand that? We, we live in a time where it, it's not okay any longer to have a difference of opinion because somehow that causes me pain that you're causing me to suffer, so on and so forth. So, so this whole thing now, we've got disagreement, we've got what is reported as suffering, you've made me suffer, you're making me, you're giving me distress, I'm going to pay you back in kind. Then the word condemnation, declared to be reprehensible, wrong or evil. So if you declare a building or a structure, if you condemn, I should say, a structure, then that's what you're saying. It, it no longer has I- I- any use, all right? It'd be wrong to leave it up. But if you condemn an individual, you are saying you are reprehensible. You no longer have any worth of value. You are evil. And again, that's where society has gone with our differences of opinion. We want to condemn people that don't think like we do, that don't live like we do, that don't worship like we do, that don't have the same values that we do. And then indignity. It means an act that offends against a person's dignity or self-respect to insult. Humiliating treatment, let me ask you. You may not have done it, but have you ever had thoughts where you wanted to humiliate somebody because of something they did to you, something they made you suffer? See, it's all tied together, really. And Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to a higher life. I'm calling you to something different. I want you to live differently than to be somebody who is motivated by and responds out of condemnation and humiliating others when you are pained, when you suffer, when a wrong is done to you, or when there's somebody who disagrees with you. In fact, I'm, I'm going to go the extra mile. Jesus says this, I want you to love your enemies. Now think about that. Love your enemies? This is definitely somebody that's causing you some pain, that's hurting you, that doesn't care for you. And of course we want to retaliate. We want to condemn them. We want to set things right. And Jesus says, no. You're going to live a different way. You're going to live the way that I live. You're going to breathe my air. You're going to live and move in the space that I move in. I'm God And I want you to love your enemies. There's a book entitled Less Than Human. Why We Demean, Enslave, and Exterminate Others. It was written by David Livingston Smith. I'm going to quote a summary of the book. How is it that we can casually disregard morality and common sense set aside our own paralyzing sense of revulsion to commit the most atrocious acts against other humans and then put on the kettle, make a cup of tea and cheerfully go about the rest of our day with a clean conscience. 
that's where society is. And that may well be where you're living or some of the struggles relationally or with community that you're having. You find yourself here in the words of Jesus. Don't humiliate others. Don't retaliate. Don't return in kind. I want you actually to love. Even when you're hurt, even when you're dismissed, even when you're devalued, I want you to love back. The writer goes on, he says this. The answer is simple to this question. Why do we do this? He says, we are conveniently able to suspend our better instincts, watch, by dehumanizing those we seek to damage and degrade, rendering them less than human and almost necessary targets of our cruelty. How is it that we can do that? How is it that on one side we can be loving and kind as long as we're not suffering or being ill-treated or mistreated or abused or talked about. But on this side, we can be cool, we can be damning, we can be judgmental, we can be condemning. How is that? I was out walking my little furry babies, my Theo and my Sophie, all right? And the air was cool, but the sun was out. And the air was cool enough, the temperature's still yet cool enough, that I put on sweats. So I had on typical pant, sweat pant, and a hoodie. Now, as I was walking, I realized something, because I had stopped, and we were down by a lake, and great trees, and fall leaves, and so forth. But the sun was a two o'clock sun, so it, was, it had already moved to the side, and it was at an angle. And so as I stood there, my entire body was not in the sun. If I was turned to the side, then half of my body was in the sun and the other half was in the shade. Now I want you to listen to this. Now get this. Don't be distracted. In my standing there, think about this. I'm in the same geographical location the sun hasn't changed at all. It's exactly where it's supposed to be. The air temperature doesn't change. But literally, as I was standing there, I could feel the sun on my left side, and it was warm and toasty. And I reached over to my right side, and it was cool to the touch, even cold. I wonder if some of our condemning thoughts towards others, our ease at dehumanizing others, comes because we're not facing the sun. S-O-N. You see, your proximity, your awareness to the sun will affect the warmth that you're feeling. And it's not Jesus' fault. Jesus is everywhere, right? <laughs> it's not, okay, and it's, it's not the air temperature, and it's not the geographical and where you are. It's not your job and your friends and everything else that we want to blame for our attitudes. It's my own posture and awareness. And all I would have to do is turn more towards the sun. Here's something that struck me as well as I was walking along. 
Have you ever had this happen as you're walking on a, on a street? I, I've had this happen numerous times as I'm out walking with, with the dogs through a neighborhood now. It, it requires buildings or a neighborhood for this to happen. All of a sudden I'll be walking and I'll take a step and there is this blasting light like I am an ant under a magnifying glass. I say blasting light. I, I, it, it's not visual. I can feel the heat and I walk right through it. And I've done that several times and I back up to where I was, where I felt that heat and I catch it again and I stand still and literally the sun bouncing off of an upper window of somebody's house and reflecting back down on the street is magnified and catching me and literally it would, it would burn you. It's so hot, it's uncomfortable. You've got to move out of it. Have you ever had that happen? It's an amazing thing, that sun and reflection. Now, listen to this. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, so we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see, true community thinks about others more than oneself. True community and loving the way God loves us is sacrificial and says, I'm going to love you regardless of how I personally am being treated. I'm going to be a reflection of the heat of God's love. And that's what we are. This week as I was praying and thinking about what I would bring to you, I stumbled across something that brought me to tears. I want to share it with you. Now, I'm inviting you into this. You're going to have to intentionally listen hard. Make yourself listen, okay? There's some length to it. And I'm going to read it, but I've broken it down so that it will also be visual. The words will be on the screen as I read, all right? Here's what I found. I want to share it with you. On the night of November 20th, 2001, a conversation held over instant messenger changed our lives forever. Our 12-year-old son messaged me in my office from the computer in his bedroom. Ryan, can I tell you something? Mom, yes, I'm listening. Ryan, well, I don't know how to say this really, but, well, I can't keep lying to you about myself. I've been hiding this for too long and I, I, I sort of have to tell you now. By now you probably have an idea of what I'm about to say. I am gay. Ryan says, I can't believe I just told you. Mom, are you joking? Ryan, no. I thought you would understand because of Uncle Don. Mom, of course I would. But what makes you think you are? Ryan, I know I am. I don't like Hannah. That's just a cover-up. Mom, but that doesn't make you gay. 
Ryan, I know, but you don't understand. I am gay. Mom, tell me more. Ryan, it's just the way I am. It's something I know. You are not a lesbian, and you know that. It is the same thing. Mom, what do you mean? Ryan, I am just gay. I am that. Mom, I love you no matter what. Ryan, I am white, not black. I know. I am a boy, not a girl. I am attracted to boys, not girls. You know that about yourself, and I know this. Mom, what about what God thinks about acting on these desires? Ryan, I know. Mom, thanks for telling me. Ryan, I am very confused about that right now. Mom, I love you more for being honest. Ryan, I know. Thanks. We were completely shocked. Not that we didn't know and love gay people. My only brother had come out to us several years before, and we adored him. But Ryan, he was unafraid of anything, tough as nails and all boy. We had not seen this coming. And the emotion that overwhelmed us, that kept us awake at night, and sadly influenced all of our reactions over the next six years, was fear. We said all the things that we thought loving Christian parents who believed the Bible, the Word of God, should say. We love you. We will always love you. And this is hard, really hard. But we know that God, what God says about this, and so you're going to have to make some really difficult choices. We love you. We couldn't love you more. But there are other men who have faced this same struggle, and God has worked in them to change their desires. We'll get you their books, and you can listen to their testimonies, and we will trust God with this. We love you. We are so glad that you are our son, but you are young, and your sexual orientation is still developing. The feelings you've had for other guys don't make you gay, so please don't tell anyone that you are gay. You don't know that yet. Your identity is not that you are gay. It is that you are a child of God. We love you. Nothing will change that. But if you are going to follow Jesus, holiness is your only option. You're going to have to choose to follow Jesus no matter what. And since you know what the Bible says, and since you want to follow God, embracing your sexuality is not an option. We thought we understood the magnitude of the sacrifice that we and God were asking for. And this sacrifice we knew would lead to the abundant life, perfect peace, and eternal rewards, even if it was incredibly difficult. Ryan had always felt intensely drawn to spiritual things. He desired to please God above all else. So for the first six years, he tried to choose Jesus. Like so many others before him, he pleaded with God to help him be attracted to girls. He memorized the scripture, met with his youth pastor weekly, and went to all the youth group events and Bible studies. He chose to get baptized and filled journals with his prayers. He read all the Christian books and explained where his gay feelings came from and dove into counseling to further discover the origin of these unwanted attractions to other guys. 
He worked through the difficult conflict resolution with Rob and I and invested even more deeply in his friendships with other guys, straight guys, just like the reparative therapy experts advised. But nothing changed. God didn't answer Ryan's prayers or ours. Though we were all believing with faith that God, the God of the universe, the God for whom nothing is impossible, could easily make Ryan straight, but he did not. Though our hearts may have been good, we truly thought that we were doing what was loving. We did not even give Ryan a chance to wrestle with God, to figure out what he believed God was telling him through scripture about his sexuality. We had believed firmly in giving each of our four children the space to question Christianity, to decide for themselves if they wanted to follow Jesus, to truly own their own faith. But we were too afraid to give Ryan that room when it came to his sexuality for fear that he'd make the wrong choice. Basically, we told our son that he had to choose between Jesus and his sexuality. We forced him to make a choice between God and being a sexual person. Choosing God, practically, meant living a lifetime condemned to being alone. As a teenager, he had to accept that he would never have the chance to fall in love, hold hands, have his first kiss, or share the intimacy and companionship that we, as his parents, enjoy. We had always told our kids that marriage was God's greatest earthly gift, but that Ryan had to accept that alone and that he wouldn't be offered that present. And so, just before his 18th birthday, Ryan, depressed, suicidal, disillusioned, and convinced that he would never be able to be loved by God, he made a new choice. He decided to throw his, out his Bible and his faith at the same time and try searching for what he desperately wanted, peace in another way. And the way that he chose to try first was drugs. We had unintentionally taught Ryan to hate his sexuality. And since sexuality cannot be separated from the self, we had taught Ryan to hate himself. So as he began to use drugs, he did so with a, reckless and a, with a recklessness and a lack of caution for his own safety that was alarming to everyone who knew him. Suddenly, our fear of Ryan someday having a boyfriend, a possibility that honestly terrified me, seemed trivial in contrast to our fear of Ryan's death, especially in the light of his recent rejection of Christianity and his mounting anger at God. Ryan started with weed and beer, but in six short months was using cocaine, crack, and heroin. He was hooked from the beginning, and his self-loathing and rage at God only fueled his addiction. Shortly after, we lost contact with him. For the next year and a half, we didn't know where he was, or even if he was dead or alive. And during that horrific time, God had our full attention. We stopped praying for Ryan to become straight. We started praying for him to know that God loved him. We stopped praying for him never to have a boyfriend. We started praying that someday we might actually get to know his boyfriend. We even stopped praying for him to come home to us. We only wanted him to come home to God. By the time our son called us, after 18 long months of silence, 
God had completely changed our perspective because Ryan had done some pretty terrible things while using drugs. The first thing that he asked me was this. Do you think you can ever forgive me? I told him, of course. He was already forgiven. He had always been forgiven. Do you think you could ever love me again? I told him that we had never stopped loving him, not for a second. We loved him more than we had ever loved him. Do you think you could ever love me with a boyfriend? Crying, I told him that we could love him with 15 boyfriends. We just wanted him back in our lives. We just wanted to have a relationship with him and with his boyfriend. And a new journey was begun, one of healing, restoration, open communication, and grace. Lots of grace. And God was present every step of the way, leading and guiding us, gently reminding us simply to love our son and leave the rest up to him. Over the next 10 months, we learned to truly love our son, period. No buts, no conditions. Just because he breathes. We learned to love whoever our son loved, and it was easy. What I had been so afraid of became a blessing. The journey wasn't without mistakes, but we had grace for each other and the language of apology and forgiveness became a natural part of our relationship. As our son pursued recovery from drug and alcohol addiction, we pursued him. God taught us, taught us how to love him, to rejoice over him, to be proud of the man that he was becoming. We were all healing. And most importantly, Ryan began to think that if we could possibly forgive him and love him, then maybe God could too. And then Ryan made the classic mistake of a recovering addict. He got back together with his old friends, his using friends. And one evening that was supposed to simply be a night at the movies turned out to be the first time that he had shot up in 10 months and the last time. We got a phone call from a social worker at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle asking us to come identify our son that he had arrived there in a coma in critical condition. We spent 17 days at Harborview, during which time our whole family was able to surround and love on Ryan. We experienced miracle after miracle during that time, things that no doctor had any medical explanation for. God's presence was tangible in Ryan's room. But that is a long, sacred story that I have to tell on another time. Though Ryan had suffered such severe brain damage that he had almost complete paralysis, the doctors told us that he could very well outlive us. But unexpectedly, Ryan died on July 16, 2009. And we lost the ability to love our gay son because we no longer had a gay son. What we had wished for, prayed for, hoped for, that we would not have a gay son came true, but not at all in the way that we used to envision. Now when I think back on the fear that governed all my reactions during those first six years after Ryan told us that he was gay, I cringe as I realize how foolish I was. I was afraid of all the wrong things, and I grieve not only for my oldest son, who I will miss every day for the rest of my life, but for the mistakes that I made. 
I grieve for what could have been had we all been walking in faith instead of by fear. Now, whenever Rob and I join our gay friends for an evening, I think about how much I would love to be visiting with Ryan and his partner over dinner. But instead, we visit Ryan's gravestone. We celebrate anniversaries, the would have been birthdays, and the forgettable day of his death. We wear orange, his color. We hoard memories with pictures and clothing he wore, handwritten notes, lists of things he loved, tokens of his passions, recollections of the funny songs that he invented, his curious George and baseball blankie, anything really that reminds us of our beautiful boy, for that is all we have left. There will be no more new memories. We rejoice in our adult children and in growing our growing family as they marry but ache for the one of our gang of four who is missing. We mark life by the days B.C., before coma, and A.D., after death, because we are different people now. Our life was irrevocably changed in a million ways by Ryan's death. We treasure friendships with others who, quote, get it because they too have lost a child. We weep. We seek heaven for grace and mercy and redemption as we try not to get better, but to be better. And we pray that God somehow can use our story to help other parents to learn to truly love their children just because they breathe. Written and posted on Facebook by Linda Robertson on January 14th, 2013. Webster's defines giving honor as the showing of usually merited respect. Another definition for honor, a person of superior standing. And then there's this one, one whose worth brings respect or fame. Now, stop. One whose worth brings respect? In my life, in my years of growing up, in my school, and even in my Bible college, and in all my training, up until about 10 years ago when I began to deconstruct people's worth and value was assigned to how good they were, how moral they were. Did they go to church? Did they read their Bibles? Were they a passionate Christ follower? And you know, really most of all, and I preferred that they think like me and worship like me. That was the test of a true spirit-filled Christian because, of course, I knew I was right. <laughs> Richard Rohr said in a recent blog, this is clearly a divine love that the small self can't achieve by itself. Martin Luther King insisted that True nonviolence is founded on spiritual seeing. Remember I talked about being out with the dogs? Now that one side I felt the sun 
And on the other side, it was cool, and it wasn't anything to do with any other circumstance but my posture, my attitude, and how I was turned. Was I turned in awareness towards others? Was I turned in a spirit of forgiveness? Was I turned in a spirit of loving as Christ has commanded us to even love our enemies? That's where the warmth comes from. I can't do it in and of myself. This kind of thing takes a spiritual seeing. And so Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 18. The idea of mankind's co-inclusion in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is entirely God's doing. To now realize that God has indeed brought final closure to the old and for us to see everything and everyone in this new light is to simply see what God has always known to be true about us in Christ. We are not debating human experience, opinion, or their contribution. This is exactly what God believes. In Jesus Christ, God exchanged equivalent value to redeem us to himself. Did you listen hear that? God re- exchanged equivalent value to redeem us to himself. He went to the highest extreme in this act of reconciliation to persuade us of our original worth. This God has given us the mandate of our ministry, and I read that to you a little bit earlier, how that we now have been given the ministry of reconciliation. My ministry, my purpose in life is not to point out where you are wrong. My ministry, my calling in life is to introduce you to the Father, to introduce you to this incredible love and forgiveness this condemnation-free, this judgment-free relationship with the creator of the universe. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. You will have to admit it. We have judged no one in an unworthy manner or made anyone feel inferior. Neither have we taken advantage of anyone. Is that possible? Is it possible to look at every human being without judgment and see every human being as having worth and value because God assigned it to them and he did not ask my opinion and he didn't ask yours. I love it's twice stated in this story. I almost titled my message by this statement, this phrase, but I realized I would have to contact Linda Robertson and get her approval. It just is so amazing. Just because they breathe. Do you want a measure? Do you want a ruler? Do you want a a measuring stick by which you're going to honor See, because it's none of the things that I used to use as a ruler for whether I would give you honor. Because I'm not God and I don't think like he does unless I change my proximity and my attitude and turn, me turn, towards his light. 
the standard that God uses to judge value is that you are breathing. Just because he breathes. And so if you're a guy and you have a boyfriend, or you're a girl and you have a girlfriend, or are married to another girl, let's be more explicit. If you're a guy and you have sex with another guy in a committed relationship with whom you are in love, I want you to know that Genesis Gathering is a place where you are valued just because you breathe. Our doors are wide open and you are welcome here and we affirm we affirm not only your worth, but the call of God that is on your life. And we would love to see you serving him in some capacity, even in the local church, if you would like. And if you live in Denver, consider us. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 8, I'll close with this. This grace shown towards us communicates a wisdom and discernment of our worth that completely surpasses any definition. This grace shown towards us communicates a wisdom and discernment of our worth. I am human. I am breathing. Therefore, you can see in me value. You are human. You are breathing. Therefore, I cannot hate you, judge you, condemn you. Respond in kind. out of my own pain and hurt. Why? Because Jesus commanded me to love and even to pray for those who abuse you. Bless those who curse you. Oh, if we would follow that one verse right now could turn our communities upside down and around and bring us peace. Sweetheart, Today is communion, as I mentioned to you at the beginning of our service, and so we're passing out the elements here, there, where you are, if you would get your bread and your juice. Boy, honey, I, I, I don't know of any other message around which communion has more meaning than this one. We are his body. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is us. We are the body of Christ. I have value because he's assigned it. You have value because he assigned it. 
It was an exchange, an even exchange. His life for mine, his life for yours. Equal exchange of worth and value, the scripture says. That makes this so precious. His body broken for us. I pray that all the strongholds of hate, the strongholds of pain, retaliation, judgmentalism that might exist in my life and yours will come down right now and be demolished by the love of God as we take and eat the bread of the Lord. Let's take. Here we are. And after supper, he took the cup. (laughs) I prayed that God would help me through reading that story without crying, because I cried every time I read it. But now here at communion, I'm so aware. I'm from that I am Ryan. In so many ways, I was where Ryan was. Came this close to losing my life. My prayer is that God would grant me to live out my life telling others this message. Let's take and drink the blood of the Lord.